This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Yannick Magnin. And I'm Luc-Olivier Dumabile. And our topic this week is... Car buying tips and tricks. Hmm. I don't think that's going to be very useful for me, but we'll see. Uh, but first up, I have some follow-up. So on episode 61, we talked about uh, DJ hardware and software ecosystems. And we had a big discussion. And one of the cool apps that I brought up uh, during that episode was Tractor DJ, which I said was super interesting, except... It wasn't really maintained anymore, and we weren't sure what the fate of this app was going to be. And recently with iOS 11 and all that stuff, we were afraid that maybe the app was just going to disappear uh, because it wasn't going to keep working. Well, miraculously, uh, two weeks ago, shortly after we released our last episode, um, Tractor DJ got an update. Tractor DJ 1.6.8 is now out, and it is a really weird update. Because it's not at all what anyone expected would actually be in the update. Uh, literally all it does, all this update does, is it swaps out Dropbox Sync for iCloud Sync. And unfortunately, that means you lose functionality, which is even stranger. So previously, your metadata would sync over Dropbox and would be syncable with Tractor Pro on the Mac. However, Tractor Pro is not iCloud enabled, so it doesn't benefit from the iCloud Sync that is in Tractor DJ. And the iPhone, uh, the iPhone version, because it's not a universal app, hasn't been updated earlier. So really, it's not so much sync as it is backing up your metadata to iCloud, which is a significant downgrade from having your metadata sync on all your devices. Uh, and some people just got so pissed off by this update that they have just given up entirely on Tractor DJ if they hadn't already. Uh, it's sort of a middle finger to users of the app because... It, pretty much nothing else has changed. Uh, I believe it's now 64-bit, which, I mean, yay, it keeps working, but, like, everything else is basically the same, except for the sync that got greatly downgraded. So, super unfortunate thing there. Uh, I didn't have this written down in my notes either, but also notable for DJs. Uh, today it was announced that SoundCloud is unfortunately dying in 50 days uh so you have 50 days to go download anything you want on soundcloud and then it disappears forever uh so that sucks uh but i guess now i can upload all my mashups and i won't be too angry if i get my third content id strike and my account gets deleted Oops. Uh, but yeah so uh unfortunately soundcloud is going away and i know a lot of artists are freaking out because they have no replacement for what soundcloud is uh i know that there are some podcasting companies that have built their businesses on hosting their podcasts on soundcloud and they must be freaking out today as well uh so yeah uh don't rely on soundcloud because it's going away unfortunately uh next item of follow-up is about episode 56 which is one of my favorite episodes of the year even though it wasn't a very good one uh of course it was the episode where i gave my first impressions at of the at the time unreleased nintendo switch um and on that episode, I gave my opinion on the graphical fidelity of Splatoon 2, which was basically the only first-party game I got to play uh, at the event back in January. And at the time, I said the graphics were gross, because unfortunately, it was only running at 720p, and it had no anti-aliasing. And a few weeks ago, we didn't talk about it on the show, but there was some promising information. Uh, at E3 during a Nintendo Treehouse stream, uh, the producer of the game, or at least, well... You'll see. Uh, it was said that the game runs at 1080p 60fps, which led people to believe that, oh, great, they finally optimized their graphics pipeline and the game is going to run at 1080p 60fps. However, that's not true. Uh, the translator for Nintendo didn't actually translate what the guy said in Japanese, 
Like, they said completely different things because they wanted to keep the flow of the conversation going and not necessarily rehash what the guy said. Uh, So, unfortunately, people just kept believing that this 1080p60 thing was true. However, the producer actually said that the game ran up to 1080p. (laughs) Which which is a small difference. Yeah, that's a bit better. So, this week, uh, Digital Foundry put up a video, Friends of the Show... Uh, about the final version of the game. Review copies of the game are out, um, and people have been able to comment about various aspects of the game. I don't think the full embargo has gone up yet, so it's partial embargo right now. Uh, And what has come out is technically what they said is true. It does run up to 1080p. However, it makes use of dynamic resolution, and when docked to a television, it runs at 864p most of the time, which is more than 720, but is not 1080 and in handheld mode, uh, there was actually a downgrade on that front because at, uh, well, I guess it's a partial downgrade. So at the event where I was, uh, it was running 720p fixed on all configurations. Uh, now handheld is also dynamic resolution and 720p was not giving 60fps, uh, sta- uh, stable enough 60fps. So they are also doing the dynamic resolution and the game spends most of its time at 648p on handheld mode um oh that's sad it's very sad uh because i was watching footage of splatoon 2 this week and i mean like people say uh one of the reasons nintendo can get can get get away with weaker hardware is that they get high frame rates with good art design but usually they get like high frame rates good art design and native resolution and now they weren't even able to get that which is really just saddening um but I guess the counterpoint to that is if you look at the uh, library of games on the Switch right now, 80% of the games on the system are 60 FPS, which is not something you can say about any other console right now. And you haven't been able to say that since basically the Nintendo Entertainment System. Uh, games have not been running at 60 a lot this generation, especially not last generation. And I guess it's nice that if you value frame rate over graphics... Uh, the Switch is a place where you can go play a lot of games at 60 FPS. Now, I'm, I must also say that there are some games, especially third-party ones, like uh, Dragon Quest Heroes, which run at basically like 20 frames per second on the Switch. Uh, but like Nintendo puts a high priority on 60 FPS usually, and aside from Zelda, which ran at like maybe 20, uh, they put a high emphasis on getting that 60 FPS uh, frame rate, and I guess it's great because the gameplay is super fluid. It's just unfortunate that if you have like a 4K TV, the games look really bad on it. So now let's go to the real follow-up. When you're getting a Switch. Because it's like the third episode in a row where you have Switch follow-up and not good news, meaning you're getting a Switch. Yeah, I'm not getting a Switch. Oh, come on. Come on. So oh. the problem is I looked at my list of games that I am in the process of playing right now. And I have too many games that I'm in the process of playing right now. And I already have a pre-order for Destiny 2, uh, which is coming, which is going to take over my life. Uh, and Again. the beta is next week, and that's going to take over my life. Again. And I basically have no justification to buy any video games for the foreseeable future. <laughs> which is sort of, it's sort of a blessing uh, and a curse. Yeah, it makes me sad. It makes me sad. One and day... the other thing is there's nothing I want to play on Switch right now, which helps... I guess. To be honest, though, these days I play a little bit of Arms, a little bit of Mario Kart, but I've pre-ordered uh, Splatoon 2, so I'm uh, greatly excited for next week. No, yeah, next week. Next, uh, it's not this Friday; it's next Friday. So it's a week after the 
you'll be hearing my voice. Uh, so I'm quite excited about it. Um, a bit sad with those news of the performance. I didn't have time to watch the the digital family video because I was like really excited about the news, but now I'm a bit sad. The other thing, of course, that we need to factor into this is Gran Turismo Sport got a release date today. Yay. Uh, and it's coming out in October. And that has a VR mode, and I think I would rather play Gran Turismo Sport in VR than buy a Switch. Ooh, okay, that's a bold claim. Well, I've been waiting for this game for years, and there's going to be Ace Combat next year on VR. Like, there is a bunch of good VR stuff that I'm excited for coming out in the next year. And I also have some titles that I'm interested on on the Switch, but sort of like Wii U, there's titles that I don't feel any pressure to actually play now. I can play them whenever, so I'm just going to wait until either there's a price drop or there is a game that I absolutely must play right now, which is not here right now. Good. So let's move on to the main topic. Good. So compared to last episode, this week we'll have a less polarizing topic. I hope so. I'm not sure about that. I hope so. I think so. I think so. We'll see about that. Uh, The big reason why last week we had to move the recording a bit earlier was because I kind of did the big purchase. And that's kind of all the culmination of why I'm doing this episode. So I've decided to replace my 2014 Ford Fiesta ST. And I'll keep the reveal of the replacement for later in the show. And obviously, as you may expect, if I replace my car, the last few weeks of my free time have been mostly about car shopping. So because of that, I've decided to talk this week about some of my car buying tips and tricks. Uh, This episode is kind of the end result of uh, my personal research about buying new or used car, uh, advices I got from friends and colleagues and also from experts. And what I mean by expert is car journalists, finance experts, people that know cars and all of the world that is around buying a new cars. I thought you meant me by expert, but... If you think you fit an expert, I did add, I did put it in my note, like car journalist, finance expert, etc. So I could have said oh, car journalist, finance, Yannick, and etc. Is that okay with now? Yeah, that's great. Tip one, don't buy an American car. Oh my, oh my. <laughs> Let's keep that discussion for the last <laughs> part of the show. <laughs> so um, in my personal opinion, and what I've seen f- with my experience is the car buying process is split in three into three parts and it can be summarized by the following first one will be the kind of the why and why do you want to get a new car the second part will be the identifying and the shopping for the right car and obviously the last part is getting the shit so um the episode will be split into those three parts and lastly we'll end this episode with a small discussion about what i bought what i've decided to replace my current car with and also a bit kind of Rehash some of the points I made in the first three parts with some real life experience that I, uh, I that I did experience in the last few weeks. So part one, you've decided to get a new car. Now what? And at this point, it is important that there's two things when you've decided that you want to either get a new car, replace your car, or just like add to your current uh, car collection. Let's just put it this way. <laughs> And the first most important thing when you decide that is we should talk about budget. So whether you decide to pay the car cash or using any finance products, you need to be sure what to know to know what you can afford. And obviously knowing that is not limited to the amount of cash or the amount of money you can pay per month. 
it is important to think about all of the other expenses that car ownerships create. Couple of examples, insurances, driving license fees, vehicle registration, petrol budget, car repair budget, because sadly for some cars, it might happen, on depending on how many years you plan to keep the car. And obviously there is also normal maintenance. Moreover, setting a budget is something that is required to be done before starting to shop. Especially if you're a bit like me. Uh, it is important to know the down-to-earth stuff before you go on a test drive and then all of the emotion mixed common sense wants to jump out the window while uh, you do the test drive. The fun part. Yeah, and it doesn't really... It's not a car-specific topic. It applies to all uh, parts of your life. Like, I have a $100 a month entertainment budget, and that's part of the reason why I don't have a Switch, because I would have to basically accumulate, like, four months' worth of my uh, entertainment budget and not buy anything for four months to afford to get a Switch. And, like, you have to be very disciplined about this stuff so that you don't end up in the street because you bought a bunch of stuff that you didn't need yeah, and it's interesting that you're talking about like comparing your Switch budget, which let's say it's $500, to the monthly allowance you have per month. Because when you've decided to have a set budget, it's always good, especially for a big purchase like a car, because the numbers tend to be big, whether you buy a used car or not. It's It's always important to define your budget by the full amount you want to pay for the car. Obviously, if we take an example, you say, let's say you can pay up to $350 per month and you would like to keep the car for five or six years. And obviously, depending on, we'll come back about the finance talk later still, but let's just say you want to pay that car for like five years because you might think you want to keep it for like six or seven. So you want to have a couple of years where you don't have any car payments while still enjoying your car. So just, it gives you about like $20,000. And when you're setting a full price budget, it will be better for you at helping to compare between different car models and also between different methods of paying for the car. And it, just to give you an idea that at this point, like Enik mentioned, it's important to set a budget. And the reason why I think full price budget is important will come uh, later. It's important to see that and make the calculation per month too. But uh, you'll see some of the sell tactics is also used to say like, Oh, we'll talk about the price per month because, oh, if it's $1 more than your budget, oh, it's okay. You, you'll be able to find, like, everybody is able to find $12 per year. Um, like, obviously, I'm talking about low numbers, but it can be, like, $5, 10 $15. And then if you only think per month, it seems slow, but in the end, it might be big. The next point on my list after the budget is not less important. It's just it's important in a different way. Obviously... You need to find if you have a need for a car. And if and if you have need, obviously, if you want to get a car, you need to identify what are the needs for it. And I think it is as important as budget, but I think it's the budget is always, like money is always a bit more important as everything else. It's hard to want a car if you don't have the money. So, and also the other question that can be asked is, why buy a car if you don't really need it? Maybe it's because you're a bit like me and you love cars. But you might have a more down-to-earth reason because you're forced to use your car to go to work, to uh, drive your sk- you drive your kids to school. So it is important to identify the primary usage you will have for that object. And by doing so, you'll be able to identify what characteristic you need to have in your car. It might make less sense 
to buy a car, like a sports car, that drinks fuel like crazy if you drive 500 kilometers per week or you're stuck in traffic for four hours per day because you're commuting from and back to work. Maybe in that case, uh, comfort and fuel economy should be your main characteristic that you'll be looking about the car. Or you're a bit like me, you don't need to drive a car every day, but when you want to drive, you want to have an amazing driving experience. And you might want to, you don't mind like sacrificing comfort and maybe fuel economy to get a car that is a bit faster, a bit uh, better in curve and stuff like that. Other good question you could ask yourself about the needs, your your main needs you'll have with the car is how many people will be in the car with you on average and whether you need to transport big things or not. All of these questions are example to make you think about the needs you'll have to the car and obviously not overspend or buy something you don't need. It is important to note that those questions is really to identify the primary needs. And I, I do think with any uh, material one to buy, there's primary needs and secondary needs. And obviously you don't want the secondary needs to kind of impact the primary ones. And it should less affect your buying decision. Let me give you an example, and this example is quite common here, and I would say it's not here in Canada, but here in North America in general. I think we can all agree that pickup trucks are quite popular in here. Yes, unfortunately. Yeah, maybe for somebody like us, they might not like pickup trucks, but recently I had to move, like a year and a half ago I had to move. It would have made no sense for me to say, oh yeah, next time I buy a car, or, or while I was looking for a car, maybe I should buy a pickup truck because I know in the next like five or six years that I'll having a car I'll move maybe once or twice or I'll do home renovation during that five to seven years ownership it doesn't make sense to think this way I knew I know some people do and that's fine because maybe one of your priorities is drive a pickup truck and that's fine but if you create some kind of like inversion priority inversion this is some of this is one of those tactics sometimes used by salespeople to make you sell a specific product. They SUVs. Will... Yeah, maybe. Some people like SUVs, and I know it's kind of the trend right now, smaller SUV and stuff like that. Uh, you do have a point, Yannick. And that's what I mean is if you have needs, and especially for a smaller SUVs, what the salespeople was is trying to make you think is some needs that you have that are considered like without any emotion or any cell tactics secondary for you, they'll try to make them your primary because it will better fit with the characteristic of the car. To go back to my pickup example, if you need a pickup truck, maybe you should buy a smaller car because you need a smaller car for the rest of the year, but for the one week or two weeks that you need to do home renovation or move from a different place under, you can just rent it. And obviously, all of these is more on the like logical side. Needs sometimes can also be less logical and a bit more emotional. But if you identify that some of your primary needs are emotional, and sometimes it is when you are looking more for a sports car, it you need to know that, yes, I understand that my need, and it needs to be clear. Because maybe in a year or two you might regret if you didn't make it clear that what you wanted out of your car purchase is something that you have, have fun with and maybe uh, negate a bit of coffer and fuel economy. Do you have any questions so far with the first part of you want to get a new car, 
Now what you should do? I think it's pretty straightforward. Good. Now let's move to part number two. And part number two, I think, is the funniest one. Oh, no. Because it's the part where you literally go shop for cars. Oh, no. <laughs> this is the worst part. Okay, maybe for... It depends. It depends. Uh, maybe before I start, why do you think it's the worst? Okay, so step one, test drives are awesome. That That's the fun part. Everything uh, else sucks. Okay, what do you define by everything else? Like, having the dealer basically, like, hassle... Uh, harass you into basically like if they make follow-up calls to your house to say oh or have you finally considered buying the car blah 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 and then going in and negotiating for a price and all that boring shit like i I, there's a lot of things wrong with saturn like don't get me wrong my family (laughs) has had saturns for many years oh my goodness i'm very aware of the issues of saturns one of them literally like almost caught on fire uh, and traumatized my brother but that's another story uh but one of the things that was appealing about that brand was they basically were like, yeah, we're not going to hassle you for price. We have a, quote, fair price up front, and you can pay it if you want. If not, go to another dealer. And I think that's how all products should be, and even stuff like jobs. Like, I think negotiation is a pain in the ass, and I okay, would like to uh, eliminate you know it. I'll stop you there because... I'm spoiling everything. A little bit. Uh, Part two two is really about identifying the right car for you and what is the current market for that car. It's more the window shopping than the financing. Exactly. Okay. Well, that part's fun. Yeah, because in a way, this is the fun part because you have to, like you do, like you said, you do the window shopping, and it you need to identify more stuff because now that you have your budget and your needs. Part two is more about the need. Yes, we'll talk about the budget because you have to come up with a list of cars you want to go see and go try. But part two focuses more on the needs. And you take the general budget and you see, okay, can I get this car and take my budget and take my needs? Obviously, you might need to have a car that is so comfortable, but you might not have the money to buy a BMW or Mercedes-Benz or even a Bentley, which like, this is where you play with those two, but you're not fighting with somebody else to find a compromise between You're budget. fighting with yourself. A little bit. No, you're right. You're fighting with self. But like you said, doing that with yourself is quite s- simple or simpler. Let's. I think simpler is a better word. Before you move on, I do have a bit of a question, which is what percentage of people do you actually think consider their needs before going into buying a car versus people who are i want this car and then go in and then realize their budget doesn't fit um uh that's a good point i would say that i personally did that and i wouldn't say it's like i wouldn't say i'm trying to make my budget fit like which i've seen and i've heard story of that um more than like more than I know is in most cases is people that have, are more wealthy that are able to do that to make the budget fit. So um, that tends to skew some decision and more like, oh, I want that car and we'll make the budget fit. But yeah, I do agree. And that's kind of the reason why I'm doing this uh, this episode about that topic is I think, and I've seen that is sometimes we listen, you just hear like, in a way, I'll tell, like you can find most of those advices and you'll see that most people tend to say the same thing because those are simple tips and tricks that even some most people don't follow 
even they are, if they're simple. And that's why repeating them and making them more available is better for everybody. Does it answer your question? I think yeah. so. Okay. So now back to part two, where it's shopping for car. And to shop for car, you need to know which car you want to shop for. So after defining your budget and your needs, you really need to produce a list of cars you might be interested about. So for now, we'll mostly talk about when you're interested in more cars because you need to compare. Like you might not be a car person, so you might not know like which car you might like. So you might have a couple of options. You might have have suggestions from friends and colleagues and TV shows and like car reviews and stuff like that. So you'll have to kind of put uh, a list of plus and minuses. And that also include going shopping because you might have to go see the car and stuff like that. But I'll come back with the shopping part. And then you have to take those plus and minuses for each of the car and contrast them with the needs and the budget you've defined in part one. And hopefully by doing so, maybe just looking at the specs or looking at the market this car is hitting at, you might end up removing some of the cars you want. You had on your list initially. And I feel personally that with that initial like shopping around without going to the dealership, I think personally the sweet number for that is you should have a list of three cars you could, would like to want to see in person and test drive. And to get that number, get down to three cars, what I like to see, what, what I like to do to see if a car is a good fit is I like to get detailed information. And here I'm not talking about stack like horsepower, stuff like that. This also affects it. But here I'm, I think it's easy to talk about numbers, but here I'm, about, I'm talking about other people's opinion. Whether they come from car journalists, YouTubers, owner, I think you can learn important information about features and quirks of a specific model you might be interested. And those features and quirks make you add a car to your list or remove one from your list. So I would invite you to read or even watch reviews and maybe go to forums like car owner forums might give you a lot of information. Maybe sometimes too much. Because they might be down, like drilling down a specific problem for that car, but knowing that a, pro- a car has a recurring problem is an information of itself, whether you're good or bad at mechanics. And with all of this, you will be able to get different opinion about the same model and see if there's like recurring themes. And if there's recurring themes, you'll be able to compare that with your list of needs and see whether you want. Uh, to maybe negotiate a bit with yourself, whether it's important or not, or you might end up keeping more than three cars on the list. But I personally think that three cars, it's easy to then do the typical, okay, I know one of, after like going to the dealership and like we'll discuss about what we do at the dealership or when we go see a used car, whether it's a used car dealership or a private seller, there's stuff we need to do. And maybe by doing that, there will be an easy way out. That's why I like about number three is in most cases, there's always one option that is like this option. I'm sure that it won't fit. Uh, it's an easy way. It's This option is easily removable after getting more information about it. Now that we have come up with the list, uh, I think now we need to move to the next step, which is the market step. And in that subsection, it mostly applies if you're looking for a used car or if you currently want to sell your car or exchange it with uh, a new purchase. And for used cars, I think it's important to know the market value of a car model. And the easiest way to get that is to go to your local, local classified ad website or 
in the journal and anything where you can see classify ads and find maybe five, six, seven, eight, a lot of different example of the same car model and see what are the difference between and it will tell you what you should expect to pay for a car in perfect condition in average condition and in bad condition also there's services that does that for you uh they will tell you that okay it's for let's put it in, let's use my car as an example so a 2014 for fiesta st with that kilometers and if the car is like of average condition there's a couple of scratches on the uh, on the bumpers didn't have any accident you should expect to pay that amount and then you'll be able to compare on your local market because it may be in your local market that car sells like hot cakes so it might be more expensive because of that reason or it might be cheaper because used car dealership are stuck with them so knowing the market value puts you in a better spot to negotiate a good price whether you're buying from a dealer or a private seller and obviously the same advice will apply if you want to sell or exchange your car. Uh, as you might expect, selling your car yourself is always the best way to get as much money as the car is worth. There's always another option for that is to give the car back to the dealership you're buying your new car from. And in that case, you'll get what we call a wall said or trained in value. And knowing the difference between those two will better prepare you for negotiation. Um, like I said, selling privately will bring you the most money because you will be able to sell your car at market value, what the car is worth on the market. But obviously, to go back to your next point, you'll have to deal with strangers. And dealing with strangers can be hard and time-consuming. People can be unreliable to appointments. On the other side, the dealer will give you trade-in value, which is less money than the market value, but because the dealer is taking care of that for you in a way they, they, they get the car like they, they will look at some of the tools but in most cases they, they will might do a small like test drive but they don't do a full-on mechanical expansion it's something super quick they give you a number like on the spot nearly and for that they take some risk and why the price is lower than market value but they take the car right now and there's kind of a middle a middle solution I've seen popping up in the recent uh, years. And it's kind of an in-middle solution. So you can offer your car as private sell, but dealers will help you do that with them. By doing so, they might be able to offer finance options to the buyer. And on your side, you might be able to get more value than trade-in value on your current car. So those options is interesting if you have a car to give back to the dealership to see whether you're ready to do some work to get the most money out of it or just do the least amount of work but get less money. And also, if we go back a bit on the used car market, finding the perfect car for your used car for your need might be challenging because in your mar local market, you might have multiple car options, multiple cars with different option package. The price might vary depending on the option, kilometers and stuff like that. And you might be forced, if you want a specific color or a specific option, you might be forced to take your search to another city or even nationwide. So you need to define whether you're willing to drive to another city or send a friend, maybe up to the other side of the country to scout for a deal for you. If you're ready for that, you might be forced to take some risk because of that. You might not have your local mechanics to do inspection. You might have to find time to find a local mechanic that you can trust to do the inspection. And it's an option you need to be comfortable with. 
last but not least in the market evaluation we need to go on the new market because we talk about used car we talk about whether you're giving your car into exchange or uh, selling it yourself which could apply to both there's one last trick regarding the market and it is doing to know the difference between the dealer price and the manufacturer suggested retail price and obviously as its name suggests the latter price is the price the, manuf the manufacturer suggests a car should be sold at so let's say they said okay this car with these options should be sold at twenty thousand dollars but twenty thousand dollars is not the price that the dealer kind of pays to acquire the car for its showroom and this is where the dealer price come into play uh, in the recent years people started to uh, create services on the web where you can find this information to help you better negotiate and or aggle a price to get uh, it to where you want uh, here in Canada, we have two examples. The first one is called unaggle, which is something Yannick would like to do, not aggled for a price. Or the other one is Car Coast Canada. Um, on those websites, you will be able to learn what is the dealer price for the car itself, for some of the option package, color options, stuff like that. And they give you advice to help you be a good negotiator. And obviously for them, it's good because then you'll be able to report back and say, yeah, using their website and their advices, I was able to get like two or $3,000 off the current price of the car without too much negotiation. Another interesting things that you can learn on those websites is rebate programs offered by manufacturer that are not promoted via ads. Some of them depend on whether you're paying your car cash or on finance. Also, some other of those uh, rebate programs can be uh, on specific model or option package or depending on whether which car you're returning to the dealership. And so it's important to know because sometimes maybe the seller will kind of forget about them because you might not need. But usually if it's, if, if it's a manufacturer program, for them it's kind of easy. It's free money to give, you, to, give to you because it is a manufacturer, manufacturer providing that money, not them. So they will be able to lower the price for you without costing them a penny. Last but not least in the shopping category, it is the shopping part. Now that we identify the market and identify a short list of cars we like to go test, test drive, we need to do the test driving. And that's the most important part of buying a car, in my opinion, after identifying all of our needs. You need to drive the car, you play with all the feature, make sure you like its driving position. Make sure you like how it feels. Because if you do, I know, I know that the typical like dealer test drives are not the best places to experience fully the car. But if you do a 15 to 25 minutes test drive and you are like in major back pain after just that amount of driving, maybe the car is not in for you and you've learned something about that car. Also, it's important to know kind of the list of common problems about specific car models because while shopping, you might want to look at what is the cost to replace some of the parts that tend to fail and at what time in my car ownership they usually fail. Might not happen at that time for that particular model you'll buy, an example you'll buy, but at least you'll be prepared to the cost of the repair and also make a better choice on which place to go repair it uh, whether the dealership can g already give you a discount on those parts. Also, if you're like Glenick and I, and you live a, in a region with seasons, 
you might be legally obligated to fit winter tires on your car. And obviously, <laughs> exactly. And obviously, depending on the size and quality of the the price of the tire can vary greatly. I've seen like prices go as low as fifty dollars per tire for winter tires, up to three, four, uh, yeah, three hundred, four hundred Canadian dollars for a tire. So you need to do multiply by four, and, and then plus taxes and all of that stuff. In most cases here, uh, maybe not during the summer, but close to fall, during fall, dealership will make you deals. They will say like, oh yeah, if you buy a car with us right now, we'll include a full set of winter tires for your, the first set for you will be included in the price. So it's something to be aware of and maybe something you can negotiate while, when you have found the right car. Um, now I also have other specific advice for used car, which are completely unrelated to new car. After doing a test drive personally, if you're, if you're buying a used car, you need, and I know this is one of the points that is mostly skipped by people, is to do a pre-purchase inspection. I think it is super, uber important to do so. The main reason why is you don't want to buy somebody else's problems. And car these days, like for the last maybe 15, 20 years, even after a test drive, uh, unless it's in a really bad shape, like subtle problems, you won't find them while driving. Maybe you'll hear noise, but even if you're not used to it, you might not realize that it is a problem, but you might just think, oh, it's a quirk of that car. Maybe like when you drive, it's, I don't know, the steering, the steering wheel feel a bit hard to turn. So you might expect, oh, because maybe it has a sporty direction or the suspension is a bit more firm. So you just assume it's because this car drives this way. A pre-purchase inspection by a car specialist will be able to detect those problems, give you a nice report, maybe even evaluate the cost of repairs, if there's repairs to be done, or kind of give you a list of problems that looks, can he or she can identify future problems, and maybe you give you a timeline on when it should happen, looking at the wear items of your car. Related to buying, not buying somebody else's problem, two other things you should get with your used car is car history reports. Uh, here in Canada, we have a, a service called CarProof, and I know in the US, a uh, more popular service is Carfax, and those services are providing not a full-on car history, car history of the car, but it's using multiple databases of information, whether it comes from the uh, regist- uh, license register uh, offices in your provinces or state, or even like dealership maintenance, insurance accidents stuff like that they will able to give you a summary of what happened with that car throughout different databases of information related to the car industry so you may be able to see if that car has an add an accident or multiple accident how many owners did that car add um also on my other point is is there a lien on the report you don't want to buy somebody else that either so these reports will give you this information Obviously, they are not always magic. They find everything. So uh, you still need to do your own homework for that. You might have to car. If you know that the car has been maintained in a specific dealership, you might have to call that dealership and try to get, uh, try to ask for the history. I know depending on the privacy, the privacy laws in your 
own country, it might they might not be able to provide you with the paper version of it because you're not the owner of the car. But they might be able to tell you, oh yeah, the last time we saw that car, it was at this mileage and it had this and that problem. And you might be able to retrace, rebuild an history on that car. And all of these reports, and especially the pre-purchase inspection, is completely to validate what the seller is giving you as, as an history for that car. Because obviously... There are bad people on our planet. And some of those bad people are trying to sell you bad cars. So those tools are there to protect you and make sure you spend money on a car that is worth it. Any questions for section two, Yannick? That was section three. I've been paying attention. Uh, that's section two. That's just what? subsection of section of part two. Yes, I know. It's. I told you. Yes, it's the fun part, but it's big. Like, shopping for cars is fun, but time-consuming. That's why I was doing a lot of stuff. Now we're at, the, we're at what you define as the boring part. You found the car you want, and now you need to go to the dealership and buy it. So now it's time to talk about money again. Whether you're at a used or new car dealership, or whether you're at a, with a private seller, you might, uh, you might want to negotiate the price down because... Maybe if it's a used car, your pre-purchase inspection gave you a different vision of that car. There might be a bit more problems that, that will happen in the next 6 to 12 months that the seller kind of forgot to tell you about. So using all of the tools we discussed in previous section will help you to better negotiate. Also, if, you have a, if you're at a used or new car dealership, they will try to give you to sell you other services that is not that is car related, but it's not about the car, some of which might be finance services, extended warranties, total loss insurance, or even life insurance. These days, these products are the bread and butter of dealerships. They will make as much money on, uh, like, I don't know the exact number, but I'll just give you an example. Like, they will make as much money as your typical, like, $25,000 cars. They will make as much commission or money on that, sending you that car, compared to they would send you, like, a one thousand, two thousand, three thousand dollar extended warranty. I am limited in what I can say about this, but I have seen the numbers, and it is ridiculous how much money they make. It makes no sense, but okay, if that's how the system works, fine. Yeah, I, I know you cannot say that much, but can you, at least you can like just shake your head and say yes, yes, it's scary those numbers, and it is important to evaluate because some of the products might be good for you, might be good for your situation. Let's take as an example an extended warranty. Uh, I think in most cases, and I think that that's the general idea, is most in most cases, extended warranty are not worth it. Why pay in advance for something that might not happen? There's a few examples where it could make sense. Cars that are known to be unreliable, but have other advantages. Like, they drive amazingly, but they're always in the shop. So in maybe in those cases, and you can go on YouTube, I have a good example of that, is Doug DeMiro. That guy is a YouTuber on, and he's a car journalist. And he's known for owning a Land Rover, Range Rover from 2005. Oh, yeah, you linked me to this guy. Yeah, yeah, And he went to a nationwide used car dealership. I think it's CarMax. Yeah, I think it's CarMax. And they are selling extended warranty because even on those used cars, this is where they make the most of their money. I think he paid like... Three thousand, three or four thousand US dollars. If you Google his name and go into his uh, YouTube channel, you'll find more details and the exact numbers. But I think to this day, after four or five years of ownership of that Range Rover, I think 
they paid in repairs because that car is super unreliable but super comfy super good off-road it's a big suv but i think they paid at least three times or even four times so about like 12 to 15 yeah even 15 maybe five times more in repairs for one that he paid like three thousand us dollars so if you know the problems in your car those extended warranty might be a good deal for you but if you're buying a toyota camry that those cars in general in 10 years they will need a oil change every like eight to ten thousand kilometers depending on the usage you do with them they will need maybe like the typical maintenance you look at the owner's manual and you say oh, this time you need to change the spark plugs and this other time you need to change the battery and that's what they just need to run for 10 15 20 years and maybe for those cases that are super reliable you might not need an extended warranty and in most cases car these days are on average quite reliable so it's better to invest that money in it's better to it's better to invest this money in kind of a repair budget keep it aside and if it has to happen spend it when it has to happen then pay maybe three thousand dollars on a warranty and then you decide then three years later even if it's five years the whole extended warranty that you want to change your car so you have paid for two years for no reason that's kind of what they want you to do in a way they want to buy those products but not use them fully and why they have good commission on that if you're buying new it's also good to uh, know how and where to negotiate Waiting at the end of the month is always a good advice because at the end of the month, maybe this month the dealership didn't make those numbers. And if they want to get like additional commission because they did like one tenth, 110% of their like of their like target numbers, they might get even more commission. And that's what they want to do each month. So if you, if you arrive at like two or three days at the end of the month and you're just like, yeah, I want this car, but I don't want to pay that price. I want to pay $2,000 below what you're telling me, they might be more inclined to get, to let that car go for less money if they are able to hit those numbers and get big commission back from the manufacturers. There is a very, very good episode of This American Life uh, where they go to a car dealer at the end of the month and they spend, I think it's an entire week, recording what happens during the day and if they're going to meet their quota or not. And... It is actually insane what they do. Uh, in this case, like they were buying cars for themselves just to reach their quotas and stuff. It is kind of nuts when you think about it. I would greatly recommend anyone interested in the topic to go listen to it. Even if you're not interested in cars, it's fascinating because it gives you a good idea of how the inside of these car dealers work. And I would say even those strategies is not only for car dealers. I would say a lot of like pressured sales Oh, enterprises will do the same whether it's a car whether it's i don't know vacuum cleaner i don't have another example <laughs> but they will do like weird things and i think we've seen example uh, recently both in the us and canada with banks they were trying to upsell you on stuff you don't need to add uh, to have to uh oh yeah it's they upsell you on on products you don't need because the exact made so uh, so hard targets to reach that sellers, salespeople are forced to do those tactics because if they don't do it, they get fired. There's a big like moral ethics discussion here that I'm kind of leaving on the side, but 
I'm sure that what we've seen, like, and every time we say like, oh yeah, like, car sells people and like cell phones sells people are the worst like sellers. I've seen some uh, studies and like uh, surveys about that. But most sales department in some enterprise end up doing those strategies. Yeah. So, yeah. And uh, I think a lot of those dealerships also sometimes operate like sometimes there are bonuses if you go over another quota on top of that and i think some dealerships actually operate assuming they're going to get the bonus and then they are in big shit if they don't hit the bonus and it's crazy the shit that they do uh but yeah like sales in general is sort of a disgusting thing uh and it sort of sucks to be the buyer especially if you've had some peaks behind the scenes of what happens you're like what the fuck is going on here uh, but yeah, it really is a weird thing. But as Sonic says, there is no such thing as ethical consumption under capitalism. So there we go. Wow. That's a good way to put it. I'm that... bringing out the memes today. Yep. Still again, another trick that you can pull out at the new car dealership is make sure that they have the car in stock. If it's in the lot and even better, if it's, you know, that it has been in the lot for months it becomes an expense to dealership and they would want to get rid of inventory, especially car that stays in the dealership for weeks and months because they will have to pay insurance on top of that. So they pay interest on the dealer price I was mentioning earlier because they don't have that money. They, like, you should pay that dealer price for them at some point, right? So car, if they, stay, if they stick too long, becomes a liability. So they want to get rid of them. And if you say, you know what? I didn't want that option, but if you give me this car that you have in the lot without the price for the option because I don't want to pay for it, they might be able to say, yeah, you have a good idea. Or they might even offer you that, saying, I don't have that exact car you want for you, but this one has better seats, like there's own climate control and it usually is a big sunroof that is usually an option, but we'll make you a deal, we'll remove the price of the option to fit your budget because they want that car to go away. Last but not least, even if you find the right car, don't be afraid to walk out if you feel pressured or if you aren't sure about the transaction itself. Yes, you might lose a car or a deal, but it's better to do that than make bad decisions. And sometimes it's hard, right? Because emotions like, oh, I want the car, I want the car. And it will be away and then it will be hard to get back and blah, blah, blah. Especially in a used car because it might be hard to find the right cars with the right options. But if you step a stake back, Go back to step one where more the logical reasoning kicks in and not the emotions. You will end up doing a better decision by doing so. And obviously, like Yannick mentioned, there's a lot of pressure in sales. So they want you to do kind of stupid shit on pressure because they'll make you, it makes people buy shit. And if you want to make a good decision, even if for you a car is super emotional, at some point it has to become logical and don't feel free feel free to just walk out at some point. And you know what? Walking out sometimes is also a negotiation tactic. And that's mostly about general car buying tips. Last part is revisiting this while talking about my current experience. Yeah. So before we go, do you have anything to add regarding part three, which is you need to spend money to get the car? Because after that, let's just say you got the good price, the dealer gives you good money for your exchange. If you return a car and then you're happy, you sign the papers, 
obviously make sure to read the papers ask questions sometimes during delivery they might want to go fast because they want you to get out feel free to ask questions feel free to say there's a mistake there go make the contract again to fix that mistake and stuff like that and when you're driving out of the dealership with your new car don't go into the big glass windows because that's bad Oh, wow. Okay, I like this advice. That's good. Don't hit your car. You Sometimes car. I have nightmares where I'm driving out of a car dealer with a car for some reason. I don't have a license, so I'm not sure why. But And I keep crashing through the glass windows first thing out of the dealer, which is kind of terrifying. Wow. Please save me, Freud. Okay. <laughs> okay, wow. You know what? It's good that you don't drive because while you said that... I know it's good I don't drive. I would never lend you my car after hearing that, but that's okay. My family also has dreams about me doing crazy things in cars, like driving on the (laughs) sidewalk at 300 kilometers per hour. Wow. Wow. And by the way, I think we have a title because that's a nice title. Uh, but yeah, so like I mentioned in the opening, all of this episode is because I changed my car. So I went from my for my beloved Ford Fiesta ST 2014 to a Focus RS. So yay, got bigger, faster, and all. Yay! It's still American though. Yeah, that's okay. That's okay. It's not really American though. This one is built in Germany. It still oh. has a Ford badge on it. That's okay. I don't mind. You don't worry. I can tell you that my brother, even if he likes my cars, he always makes fun of me because they are Fords. So doesn't he, he have a Ford pickup truck? No, he has a GM pickup truck. So no, it's, that's I think not it, better. It's still American. Yeah, but you know what? I'd be pretty impressed by a Ford's current lineup of like sports car, and it's kind of part of their like big plan since uh, the 2010s. About like one Ford, one one world, one Ford, wow. where they kind of uh, no, I think it's a like in general, I think for the car industry is a kind of a good thinking. Where in the past we've seen like you could get the I'll use Ford cars, but you can apply that to all, all most uh, worldwide companies. But you would have kind of the North American Ford Focus, and then you have the European Ford Focus, and then you have the Asian Ford Focus, and then you have the South. America and Africa. So you have like the same name, but it would be the total different car. And the logic behind the one world, one Ford is one model, one world. So the Ford Focus is kind of the same car around the world. Yes, in some cases it's like will be like left and drive, right and drive, but it's kind of the same chassis, the same pace. It's the same kind of in general car architecture around the world and obviously makes it for me it helps them make cheaper cars and stuff like this but on our side for uh for north america it makes uh it helps us get cars that were usually reserved for europeans and then it means that we get more sports car and that's mostly it joking aside that approach is actually very cool so no no it is very cool and you know what if you take a look at pre 2010 like car Ford cars that we got here, I would say they. I know there's like four car lover like here in North America, but there are like small cars were shit before they started that plan because they decided to bring more like <laughs> before the recession. Yeah. Oh come on, but like <laughs> I you, mean, you, could, you, you could, can't sort of ignore that that happened too. 
Yeah, and I think that's also why I decided to go with that uh, mantra. It's because the recession forces forced them to uh, go through that phase. But to be honest, though, don't forget that they went pretty okay throughout the recession. Everybody was hit hard, but they were pretty good because Ford, if I recall correctly, had their big like we are about to go bankrupt moment like ten years ago before the ten years before the recession. So it was at the end of the nineties, beginning of two thousand, that they had that problem. And they had to restructure the whole company and then they get rid of like sub brands and stuff like that. The same thing that uh, GM was uh, forced to do during the recession. So, okay, uh, history aside. So, yeah, so I've uh, exchanged my car. And I think the only thing I have to say about the exchange is the following. Um, this year, I've been looking into getting a new driving experience. And I'll explain the two big plans that I had and which a couple of like reasoning and like a couple of uh explanation about which uh which plans which but i was looking at a new driving experience because like i said in previous episode driving car for me is more of a luxury item and more like a passion and it's less a requirement because to go to my job i don't need my car even if i want to go see any kitwaya or my family we could like rent a car like use like car sharing services it's just that i love cars so i get cars so uh, this summer started, I would say spring started, I was like, I had kind of two plans. I know my car was three years old, so it was totally fine. I love it and still love it even if it's not longer with me. I still do miss it even if I love my new car. What I want to say is you can't replace a car that you love. You don't need to hate a car to replace it. Sometimes you just might want something different and this is what is happening. What This is what happens. So initially, I had two plans. I had one plan, which what I aimed is I want something different. So the Ford Fiesta was a front-wheel drive car, front-engine, front-wheel drive car. So I was looking maybe at something more like summer sporty. So I was I was saying like, okay, so I have a specific cash budget, and I would like to buy maybe a second car. My idea was getting a Roadster. I was looking at old Miatas or old Porsche Boxsters, for example, to get as a second car only reserved for summer so this is a two-seater roadster you can get your airs in the wind stuff like that and in most cases those cars are front engine rear wheel drive drives totally different other plan was to use a smaller cash budget to put on a new car and then replace the fiesta but obviously with the fiesta i still had i still had a loan on it so i will have to negotiate and make sure that everything went okay with the exchange the amount i would get on the exchange and maybe i have to use that smaller cash budget and raising a bit of the payments to kind of balance it out so i started with plan a and from to be honest from april to june i used some of my tricks i went to see at least six to seven cars i i was shopping every day on my local classify ads to see what i can get for my price for the price i was willing to pay um but in the end, I went to see at least six or seven cars, some of which was to fill the market of the used car for these specific models. So sometimes I went to see cars that were, I know they were outside of my budget, even if I were to negotiate with the seller. Just to give you an idea, what give, like, what three, four, five thousand outside of my budget would give me compared to a car that is in my budget? Would I get like this option package or this like more sportier version of that Miata or Porsche box or stuff like that? 
also I would like to compare some of the tips and tricks that I give with real life discussion, uh, real life example. One example of a car was in super interested to buy, got the car proof to get the history of the car. And I was super glad I did because the seller was saying, oh yeah, I think I'm the third owner. And then I realized, no, in reality it was the ninth. That's kind of a bad start. And when you realize that he's like underselling the number of owners and uh, was not able to kind of provide like maintenance history. So I was, I found it weird. And that's why I then decided to take a look at the car proof report and see that no, 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 there's a lot more owners on them. Obviously, in that example, I had to go to my local uh, uh, license uh, office to get more detailed information because car proof would just say, oh, new owner. But it wouldn't say if it was like it was going from a private seller to another private seller or it was like get, get got an exchange from um, from a dealership. So that at my local uh, government, we were able to get more details about that. Another one that was super interesting because this one I learned I knew they, it was a small uh, dent that was part of the car proof. So I got the car proof. The car proof. Uh, the car proof got uh, looked good. The mileage conformed with what the car proof was telling me. The private seller was saying, "Yeah, in the past, not with me. Uh, this car was it on this side. It got repair. You'll see the car proof. It will tell you that it was estimated at like I think." $1,800, here's the real bill with the pictures of the repair, the before and after, the previous owner that who it happened to gave that to the current seller. And then I was like, yeah, you know, I did the test drive. The test drive was good. And the seller obviously said the car was running fine. So I decided let's book a pre-purchase inspection. The first thing my mechanics does, it will do again a test drive because you might find out stuff and after five to seven minutes of waiting, a bit stressful because it was the first time I was doing a pre-purchase inspection on a used car, um, I was surprised that he came back after that short of a time. Gets out of the car and said, uh, did you realize? Did you test drive the car? I was like, yes. Did you realize that there's a big sm- burn smell oil when you drive it? I was like, uh, no. And then <laughs> we looked and looked and looked and realized that the car engine was leaking oil like hell. So that was also disappointed. I was super disappointed by that because the car was so great. But taking that into consideration, I decided to let the car go uh, without doing anything more. Uh, because uh, I could have uh, the fact that my mechanics was not able to identify the problem. He directly told me, like, if you want me to know, I will have to remove parts. And obviously, in a pre-purchase inspection, I can't remove parts because it's not your car. <laughs> so we looked a bit and he was like, yeah... If you want to go in that route without knowing the problem, but like investing money in that car to see what it is and stuff like that, I would invite you to negotiate hard and lower the price because the price was kind of on the higher range of my budget. But before that inspection, I would have maybe negotiated a little bit less. I would like to negotiate because the price was a bit high, but I would have paid maybe a thousand less but after the inspection i wouldn't pay the price asking even if i was able to negotiate a thousand dollars off my mechanic will say that you should at least negotiate like three or four thousand dollars to help you cover the potential cost of that repair so i'm not a good that is a good example and you know what after he started to say oh there's this problem that problem and blah 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 i was like super relief in a in a strange way 
because I knew, and, and that's why that's why I knew that I was making the right decision by doing a pre-purchase inspection. Because and then it like the stress went away, even if the car was kind of not full of problems, but I have kind of big problems. Uh, last other anecdote about uh, my used car purchase uh, fun is also during a personal expansion with test drive. I realized that one of the cars has had a check engine light. So I asked the seller, why was it on? And the seller answered me with the following. Like, uh, 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 it's there, but I don't know what it is. I don't care. That's a good, a really bad sign of like negligence on the seller. And if you're looking for a pristine car, a car that is well-maintained, that's a troubling sign. And by the way, the problem, uh, the problem that the car had was three cylinder out of six was were misfiring because these days you can buy those cheap, uh, cheap dongles that you plug in the onboard diagnostic port that connects to Bluetooth to your phone. Then you can get the codes and see what's the reason because they Google the code. They like they go over the internet and Google code. So those tools are super amazing. So after all of this, from April to June, I was a bit disappointed. So I decided to, I was not, dip, I was a bit depressed and a bit sad that I wouldn't find anything. And then obviously end of June, I've realized that Roadster at the end of June, all of the good ones are either bought by somebody else or the owner decided to keep them to then sell them maybe at the end of summer. So I decided, let's go through my second plan, which my second plan was really to replace the Fiesta and then replace it with something else. So I had a couple of uh, contender, uh, like I mentioned, Focus RS, uh, Volkswagen Golf R, ODS3, WRX STI, like big, here I see a trend. It's a, it was a bit more bigger car. So I went from like subcompact to compact cars, but all of them have different like drivetrains. The RS is rear bias all wheel drive. The WRX STI is all wheel drive. Golf R will have been and the S3 will have the same like like front bias all-wheel drive system that will be cl- resembling closer to my Fiesta. But uh, the car that was interesting to me the most was the RS. So I decided to go see it at first. And before everybody asks, nobody, not even, not everyone is buying a fucking Impreza like we did mention in a previous episode. Lies, uh, fake news. Oh my goodness, I know, but you know what? Maybe one day if you get your your driver's license, maybe you'll get a, you'll get a fucking Impreza. So yeah, so like I said, the RS was on paper um, my favorite car of the bunch. I started with that one to, and this one I knew that I could make the project work, but it would all depend on the exchange price I would get with my current car. And when I realized I could get a good price to remove the previous loan that I had on the car it was kind of a done deal I could have gone see those other cars but already knowing that the RS was my favorite I was kind of I I sadly couldn't resist that's what happened because what happened is I went shopping I oh it reminds me I forgot to say something in uh, section part three on part two when you're shopping it's important especially if you're shopping new to shop at different dealerships because different dealerships might give you different prices. Even if you didn't start negotiating. You're just shopping around and saying, oh, I'm interested, give me a price, and then they give you... And this is what happens with the with the RS. The RS is a limited-run car, so sadly, I couldn't execute the test drive because with the price of the car and its limited run, the most, I would say, 
I would I didn't find one, so I, but I would have expect it to be rare and it's and even non-existent. But in all cases that I went, the dealership wouldn't let anybody drive the car. Nobody at all. They assume that if you want the car, it's because you're super interested in that car, and with it is super common with IN I wouldn't say IN, but like with sports car or limited run cars that either you need to order them so you need to put a deposit like months even years in advance to get a, a slot in the factory to get your car produced and make sure it's assigned to you so you will never tie them test drive it, it until it arrives and you've signed the paper already or in my case even if it was on the dealer's lot uh, i've seen the car i've sat in it but the car the dealership the, where i went to the car was st- the car was still wrapping all the plastic protection papers that the the plastic protection that they use when they transport the cars on trucks and i got the confirmation from the dealership and even with the mileage when i got the car which was 12 kilometers which is nothing on use a new car uh, that nobody kind of drove it they drove it just to prepare it because all my paper says 9 kilometers from new like from they receive it at from the factory at nine kilometers and when i really received it for real from the dealership it was at 12 which means just driving around the dealer and making sure that the car is all prepared and all that stuff uh so uh obviously also something i didn't mention with new cars and especially like uh popular cars is sometimes dealership would put markup on it uh I've experienced that with the RS. I've went to one dealership which was charging me $5,000 more just to sell me that car because it is super popular. According to them, they were getting a shit ton of requests from other dealership to move them away from this dealership to them because they have customer wanting to get the car. Uh, but that was part of my plan. Even if I knew that the car was limited, I didn't want to pay a markup. Uh, and why I didn't look at the RS two years ago when it got announced or even when it got released in 2016 because I know that if I went to dealership at that point the markup would have been higher and also I knew that by going to another dealership another dealership could just give me the sticker price already so the negotiation is even easier because I don't have to work hard to negotiate away from that $5,000 because it's already at sticker price and I knew that before uh, going down the sticker price would be hard because it's popular, but I would at least concentrate my energy on maybe giving uh, better money on my exchange and maybe a bit a bit of a dealer rebates or making sure that they apply the most manufacturer rebates on the purchase to make the car go below sticker price. And this is what kind of happened. I got a good price on um, on the exchange. Uh, I had to put up a little bit more money to make sure that the whole loan was fully cleared because sadly, uh, I, sadly, even after the good uh, offer they may, gave me for the car, I still had left, they were still left a bit of money on the, uh, on the loan and they want to transfer it on a new loan. So I paid it all cash. So to simplify that. Uh, but like I mentioned in my two plans, I know that I had a bit of a bigger cash budget if I were to go on plan A to just buy a second car and don't change my monthly payments. So the fact that they decided to lower the cash budget at first to get a new car, I had a little bit of wiggle room to say, okay, no, I I can clear the previous loan directly now and then get a new car already, even if my monthly payment increases. So all of this to say, 
you'll hear a lot about the new car in the coming weeks. Uh, I haven't got, went to the track yet with it. Uh, hopefully, this will happen in the next few weeks. I want to do the braking. I want to do the braking period properly with the car and stuff like that. But I'm super stoked about uh, my new purchase, and hopefully, this time around, it will stay more than three years. But I'm not so sure about it, knowing myself. And that's it. Cool. Oh, anything else to add, Nick? Or nope. No, that that's sad. I wanted to do record this episode, and show you the car first so maybe you have a bit of comments about it but sadly we didn't have time to meet last time i was in Trois-Rivières. Uh but hopefully this will happen in the next uh week or two we'll see so if you want to find the show notes for this episode you can go to limitlesspossibility.net slash 68 you can find all of our episodes at limitlesspossibility.net and you can find the show on twitter at limipo underscore podcast that's l-i-m-i-p-o underscore podcast on twitter you can find me on Twitter at Sakurina, that's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A, and you can find the Garivier at Luconoche, L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And we'll see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks.